events that change our lives. Have you thought about that? Thought about what kinds of things just radically change everything we're about, our purpose, our goal. You know, we just celebrated 4th of July, and that's an event that changed our country as we celebrate our nation's independence. And one of the, the outcomes of that is our ability to openly sing and to worship and praise our God without fear that people will come in that door right now and arrest us and cart us off. But in a small sense, if, if you'll humor me, that my, my son had an event that changed his weekend last weekend. We were on the college camping trip. Don, if you could put up that picture. I don't know if you can see it. That would be a fish. That would be kissing a fish. Although he would want you to know he is not actually kissing it. But he put it right in front of his lips so it looked like he was kissing it. But, but here's the story. Um, on, on, the, on Saturday, on the trip, we were out fishing, and Mark caught his very first fish on his own. And so, um, absolutely, we celebrated and kissed the fish and held it up and then gutted it. Um, <laughs> and he was so proud of this moment. Because he cast it out, and I had taught him how to use a spinning reel for the first time, and he cast it out with a spinning reel for those that are fishermen, and he reeled it in all by himself. And, and so for the rest of the weekend, this event defined the weekend. Dad, we going fishing? Well, we're here for the college group. Okay, Dad. Five minutes later, Dad, we going fishing? <laughs> Middle of the night. He's sleeping near Susie and I's bed. And, Dad, hey, we going fishing tomorrow? <laughs> like, no, we're going to sleep. <laughs> and that's all he could talk about. And he was, he was telling everyone, as, as little boys do. And, and this became a defining moment for him that consumed him and affected his actions, his attitude, and his desires for the rest of the weekend. And, and I would bet beyond that, because he wants to know when we're going to go fishing again. And he's like, I am now a fisherman. Think about that. It defined who he thinks of himself. I am now a fisherman. I can do this. Now this morning, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with First and Second Timothy and Entrusted and, and we're fishing now? But think about this. What if we had that same passion and that same zeal when we thought about the impact of the gospel in our lives? An event that as we come to Christ, He wipes away our sin, He wipes away our past, replaces it with His righteousness because He took our place on the cross. What effect does that have on you and I in our everyday lives? Is it just an event in the past that we can talk about and reminisce about? No, isn't God great? Or does it have lasting impact? By the title of our, our series, Entrusted, His Purpose, Our Focus, you can tell our, our, our thrust is that it does have a lasting impact. In fact, it should define who we are. And so this morning, we want to continue studying through First and Second Timothy. Turn with me to First Timothy, chapter one, verse 12. First Timothy, chapter one, verse 12. And the, the, the context here, as Pastor Andrew shared last week, the goal of his instruction was love out of a pure heart and, and Timothy is being encouraged to fight false doctrine and false teaching in the church. And we heard a whole bunch of things about the law and how the law reveals our sin 
and that the law challenges us to face our sin. But then in verse 11, Paul says, but I have been entrusted by the Gospel in accordance with the Gospel of the glory of the Blessed One with which I have been entrusted. And so Paul moves from from the law to the Gospel, which is grace, which is mercy. And as he begins to talk about it, I can picture as he's writing and he talks about I have been entrusted with the Gospel, it just wells up inside of him. I can't believe what God has done for me. I can't believe salvation. I can't believe that He has put this on me. That He has considered me to be saved. And so the verses we're going to look at today, 12-17, through 17, is sort of Paul's aside. A, a, a moment where he just breaks out of what he's saying to Timothy. And he says, I've got to tell you about salvation. I've got to tell you what God has done in my life. Because it's that impactful for him. It defines who he is. And so he's talks about the impact of the Gospel on our lives. What difference does it make? How does being entrusted with the Gospel, and when we talk about being entrusted with the Gospel, it means we have been saved, the Gospel is put in us, but we have also been challenged to then share that with others. What difference did that make in Paul's life? And so in verses 12-17, through 17, we get a personal story. A personal aside is Paul just can't help himself. And we see that throughout Paul's writings. Whenever the Gospel comes up, he just can't help himself. It's the most amazing thing in the world and he has to talk about it. And so we want to look at his example in these verses and say, what did it mean for him to be entrusted? What difference did the Gospel make in his life? And as we do that, we can see what difference the Gospel makes in our lives. How we should be entrusted with the Gospel. First point there in verses 12 and 13 is God chooses His servants based on His enablement, not our resume. Amen? God chooses His servants based on His enablement, not our resume. Let's start reading at verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul starts his his aside about salvation and the impact that it has had on his life and being entrusted by thanking God for, for His grace. By thanking God for His work. So we want to unpack these verses. In verses 12 and 13, we see Paul reflecting that he is unworthy, that he is unable, based on his own merit, based on his resume, to be called worthy of being a servant of God. God chooses His servants based on His enablement, not our resume. Read in verse 12, I thank Him who has given me strength. And Paul always wells up in thanksgiving to God because it's a sign that we are under God, that we need God. When we thank someone for something, it means we didn't do it ourselves. It means this is not something that I could handle. And so Paul, by thanking God, gives credit to God. Recognition. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength. When we think about being entrusted with the Gospel and being tasked with the most precious possession, the the most precious knowledge, that can be an overwhelming task. And the first thing Paul reflects on is God is the one that gives me strength. 
God is the one that gives me strength. And the word for strength there is God's enabling power. And so it's the idea that God enables Paul to do his task. It's not that God comes in and sort of adds a little bit to Paul's strength and bolsters Paul's strength up. The idea of this phrase is Paul had nothing. There was no strength. He was completely unable. And it's God's power that enables him to share the Gospel. It's God's power that enables him to live a life that is entrusted with the Gospel. I read that, and that is so encouraging. That is so encouraging that I don't have to get up in the morning and and just hope I have enough strength to get out of bed sometimes as the kids are screaming or whatever, they're sick, or and you're like, oh, I just need another hour of sleep. But no, I don't have to do this on my own. God's strength is what allows us to share His grace and His message. He makes us equal to the task. See, God won't ever give us a task without enabling us to perform the task. Think about that. God won't give us a task unless He enables us to perform the task. Think about what that does to our excuses. Sort of, sort of wipes them all away. Oh, I can't, I can't do that. I can't handle that. God, you've asked too much. No, He hasn't. He said, I'm asking you to do an eternal thing, but I'm giving you the strength to do it. And we have an omnipotent God. And when He gives the strength, it is enough. It is enough. And Paul's thinking back to his conversion, the start of his ministry, and we look at Paul as this hero of the faith. And Paul's saying, I don't even have the strength. This is God's strength. And we're challenged in our daily lives, in our, in our, our, our efforts, and sometimes the problem is it's only our efforts, but in our, our task of living for God, God has already given you strength. The question is whether you accept that. Whatever situation you're facing, God gives the strength. And He will use that for Him. The question is, are we going to receive that? Are we going to try to do things under our own strength? Are we going to do things under His strength? I love a quote I read this week. The devil will let a preacher prepare a sermon if it will keep him from preparing himself. Catch that? The devil will let a preacher prepare a sermon if it, if it will keep him from preparing himself. And the idea is, is it my strength or God's strength? And in whatever ministry you're in and whatever you face in life, yeah, the devil will let you prepare that. He would love for you to do things on your own strength and think you have it covered. Because then, like the church at Laodicea, we don't need God. But Paul starts by saying, I need God. His strength, by His strength, I can do anything. We read on, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see the full title of Christ referring to um, that He's the Anointed One, the Messiah. Jesus, His name on earth and our Lord. He's our Master. And we've talked about each of those. But then moving on, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. And we can get the wrong idea of the phrase, judge me faithful. And, and we think of a judge as looking down and saying, okay, I'm going to choose the faithful one. But the idea of judged here is that he has considered 
people faithful. And there's an intentionality to it. And the idea is God gives the strength so that we can be faithful. And so what God is considering is those who will minister in God's strength and will faithfully do that. It's not a consideration necessarily of the past, but of the future. How people will respond to the work of God. Paul wasn't perfect, but he served by God's strength. And then that last phrase, appointing me to his service. Appointing me to his service. The idea of assigning a task or a function. When your boss gives you a task list and says, these 15 things need to be done in the next half hour. That's being appointed to a task. And it's not by our own initiative. It's a divine appointment. And so think even in just verse 12, look at the, the, what, what Paul is saying. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful or considered me faithful, appointing me to His service. The focus is all on God's strength, God's work. We are entrusted because God has said, I give this to you. I give you the strength to do it. I give you the strength to be faithful to it. Now let's move out. Village, we are appointed to His service. If we are saved, we are entrusted. And this gives assurance. It's not by my strength. It's not by my choice. But by a God who knows all things. Who is all-powerful. Who is drawing people to Himself. He appoints He equips. It's much more important to have someone trusting in God's enablement rather than confident in self. As we look at ministries at Village, it is the most important thing is where are you at with God? Are you trusting God? Are you following His leading? Are you depending on God? That is more important than if you have 20 years of experience in that ministry. A ministry can be taught Trust in God cannot be faked. And so Paul, when he's thinking about being entrusted, starts there. Starts there. We have verse 13, which is a great combination with verse 12. Because not only he appoint, does He appoint and He equip, but our past doesn't disqualify us. Your past doesn't disqualify you. The question is simply, have you received mercy and grace? Are you dependent on God for His work? And this is amazing, and this is why Paul is so uh, just astounded by the Gospel and astounded by grace, is because Paul knows where he was coming from. He was not a nice man before salvation. Look how he describes himself. In verse 13, "...though formerly I was a blasphemer." Meaning one that denies Christ, that tries to, he tried to get Christians to deny Christ. He defamed God's name. That's punishable by death in the Old Testament. He says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor. He went around churches tearing people out of homes, persecuting Christians, trying to keep Christians from following God. And in the ESV it says, and an insolent opponent. Some of your versions say a violent man, which is probably a better understanding of what the, that phrase means. 
a man that throws around his weight with, with violence, with aggression, and with pride. So Paul describes himself as a blasphemy, blasphemer, a, a persecutor, a violent man, an insolent opponent. That's a pretty accurate description with what we see in God's Word. Let me just read some of Acts and Galatians, some of Paul's description, or the author of Acts' description, and then later Paul's description of himself. Acts 7, starting at verse 60. And falling to his knees, speaking of the death of Stephen, where, where Saul, later to be called Paul, was at. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Acts 26, 9 and 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is Paul sharing his testimony later after conversion. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." Are you hearing his zeal? Zeal for the wrong thing? Acts 22, 4-5. This is Paul's words again. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them back in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Galatians 1.13 For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Paul was a sworn enemy of the church and of believers and was doing everything he could to stamp out this, this belief in Christ, in Jesus. This is not who you and I would choose to be a representative for the Gospel. We'd choose something for him. But it wouldn't be to represent the gospel, but to pay for his transgression. And so Paul has all this in mind when he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But. But. And in that word, things change. But I received mercy. God's compassion. But I received mercy. The, the, the idea of the verb here is, I was mercied. And, and so it was, it's the idea that God is intentionally placing His mercy on him. In softball, we have the term, I was mercied. And the idea is when you're so far behind that it's just embarrassing, they stop the game so you don't hurt anymore. <laughs> Not that that ever happens to our teams. But Paul was mercied in a good way. Paul was mercied and and God bestowed His compassion on him that in the middle, while he was still a sinner, Christ loved him and reached out to him and called him. 
And we see the transforming power of the Gospel. What Paul was unable to do for himself because he was so trapped and enslaved by sin, God broke in and Christ broke through on that road to Damascus and called him to Himself. And Paul was changed and entrusted with the Gospel. A man that didn't deserve it, that was adamantly opposed to it, that was a sworn enemy of it, was changed. I think that's why Paul gets so excited every time he talks about the Gospel. And he just bursts out and says, I've got to talk about it. You don't understand what God has done in my life. And my prayer is that we get to be the same way. That we begin to see what God has done in our lives. The transforming power of the Gospel. What's, what's so encouraging about that verse is no one is ever out of God's reach. There is nowhere you or I could ever travel that is beyond the reach of God's grace on this earth. If God can use Paul, God can use you. Because not one of you is going out and doing what Paul was doing. And so we, Paul shares this as an example of what God has done to encourage us, to encourage Timothy. He goes on at the end of 13 there to say, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And that can be a confusing phrase. What Paul is not saying here is that if we are in ignorance, then sin doesn't count. No, that's not what he's saying because we know from, from Paul's writings that every person is held accountable for their sin. But he's referring to an old, the Old Testament concept here in Numbers 15. You can go read that sometime. The Old Testament concept is that there was a difference between sins committed out of ignorance and sins that were committed in what Numbers says a high hand or intentionality. And Paul, what he's doing here, he's coming back to those false teachers that Pastor Andrew talked about last week. And he said, I, yes, I did all those things. I'm held accountable. They were sin, but they were before I was a believer. They were before salvation. And, and the, the jab, the dig here is, but those false teachers, they are intentionally leading you astray after knowing the Gospel. And he's not discounting his sin. He's saying the sin of intentionality after we know the Gospel holds a stricter judgment. Just like we see in James chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers because you will be judged in a stricter way. And so Paul here isn't getting out of his sin, but rather he's using his past to highlight just how evil the false teachers are being. But what an amazing story of God's grace. Russell Moore was having a conversation with Dr. Henry. They were talking about the shape of the church and And Russell Moore asked Dr. Henry if he saw any hope in the coming generation of evangelicals. Hope for the church. Hope for leaders. And Dr. Henry replied, of course there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle to the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up C.S. Lewis or Charles Colson? They were unbelievers who, once saved by the grace of God, were mighty warriors for the faith. Russell Moore added, 
The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. What a statement to the transforming work of God's grace. And we need to be sure that we are seeing the world through God's eyes. That we are seeing people around us with eyes that say God can change their lives completely and use them radically as He's done for 200 people in this room this morning. Has He changed your life? Absolutely. Don't forget, because life is so comfortable. Don't forget where we would be without Christ. As we look around, see people as potential leaders for Christ, not as sinners we despise. See them as people who need the Gospel. And once they have a taste of the Gospel, they will be changed forever. Praise God for Paul's example. God chooses His servants based on His enablement, not our resume. We move on to verse 14. The next point is God's servants are overwhelmed by His grace. God's servants are overwhelmed by His grace, which flows from from what we, we just said of not getting stagnant in our faith, but appreciating what God has done. And the grace of our Lord, in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Short verse, but powerful. And the grace of our Lord, His unmerited favor that I don't deserve, overflowed for me. And, and Paul uses a, a word here. He, there's a word for overflowed, and then he adds hyper in front of it. You know, when, when we say someone's hyperactive, what, what are we saying? What was that? Lots of energy. Yeah, no one bring up my boys. No, uh, boys have lots of energy. But we're saying they have lots of energy, and then the hyper says they have a super lots of energy. When we think of someone that is hypersensitive, maybe someone's hypersensitive to light, what are we saying? Even the smallest amount of light affects them and they cringe. And so the, the idea behind hyper is that it's super. It, it, this is extra. And Paul uses a construction here that is rarely used. He says, God's grace overflowed for you, but it overflowed super. It super abounded to you. You can't get enough of it. It's just dumped on you and dumped on you and dumped on you. What a great picture of God's grace. Of drowning in God's grace. Because there's so much of it. I love a, a, a couple phrases from a popular song right now. Drawn to redemption by the grace in His eyes, if His grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And the idea isn't a negative thing, but that God's grace so overflows for us that it affects every part of us. God's servants are overwhelmed by His grace. How do we become overwhelmed by His grace? We need to realize where we're coming from. Like Paul did. Realize that without His grace, we have nothing and life is over. 
We're overwhelmed by His grace by continuing to keep it in, in our minds. By continuing to thank Him for it, praise Him for it, by reading Scriptures that talk about it. But you see as that verse goes on, His grace results in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the with couples faith and love with the grace, but they're a subordinate place which says the grace comes first and that enables us to have the faith and the love of Christ. And that's what follows. Because without grace, we can have neither. We see because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. We read out of Ephesians this morning during worship and earlier in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. So God's grace leads to our ability to have faith and believe in Christ. Leads to our ability to love God and to love each other. And Paul here is referring back to verse 5, which Pastor Andrew said was the key verse of the section last week. And look back at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul is saying if you're going to correct, it has to be done with love. It has to be done with a right belief in God. And now Paul's saying because of His grace, that's even possible. That's how amazing grace is. Be amazed at His grace. Be overwhelmed at His grace. Just take five, ten seconds right now and consider where your life would be without God's grace. Be amazed by it. Point number three, moving on to verse 15. God's servants know and embody His purpose. God's servants know and embody His purpose. Verse 15 says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And Paul's saying here, okay, now this is very important. You need to listen here. He's not saying that everything else wasn't important. But just like parents, we'll sometimes get our kids and say, look me in the eye. You need to remember this. That's what Paul's doing to his kids, his spiritual kids here. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And we see in one verse a description of God's purpose, of Christ's purpose. He came into the world and you see a reference to His incarnation and His pre-existence. He came into the world. Why? To bring salvation. To save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. And he's not congratulating himself saying he's the best Christian. He's saying he's one of the worst sinners. And when we consider our own sin, that's the conclusion every one of us will come to. I am the worst sinner. I don't deserve the gospel. But here is the core of the gospel. When we say, are you sharing the gospel? You're entrusted with the gospel. We are saying that the gospel is the core of salvation. It means we are sinners. And we deserve death because we are sinners. That's the penalty for sin. But God came to earth in Christ Jesus and He sent His Son. 
And Jesus hung on that cross in our place, took our sin, took the payment and the penalty for that sin on Himself. And on the third day, He rose again, showing that sin has no power. And we look forward, if we believe in Him and if we have repented and we trust Him with our lives, we look forward to eternity with Him. When we ask the question, what is the Gospel? That's the Gospel. That's the good news. That's the life-transforming, life-saving news that we should have on the tip of our tongues and be able to say like that. Because it has changed us. This is a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. I appreciate Paul recognizing his sin. Notice the, the tense that he says that in. Of whom I am foremost. He is still aware of his sin and he's aware that he's redeemed. And we see salvation primary in Paul's mind and we see that he understands his sinfulness and the need for that salvation. And he admits to it. We don't like to admit to our sin. We want to justify it, blame others for it. It was the woman you gave me, Adam said. It was the snake you made, Eve said. Because we don't want to take responsibility. But Paul here says, I'm a sinner. Chief sinner. But I am redeemed. I am redeemed by the work of God our Savior. So God's servants know and embody His purpose. See, if this is Christ's purpose, and we see that over and over, Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son and you will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. This is God's purpose. If we serve Him, His purpose is our purpose. His purpose is our focus. Nothing else gets in the way. It's a straight road that says this is what you're to be about. And so being entrusted means knowing His purpose. Point number four there, which goes on to verse 16, we were saved for His purpose. We should know His purpose, but we were saved for His purpose. Your story is His purpose. Is, is his story, rather. In verse 16, let's read that. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And Paul here says, if that's God's purpose, then my salvation has to fit into his purpose. And this is challenging. This challenges our self-centered Christianity. Because, because we want to think, I've been saved so that I can live a good life. I've been saved so I won't have any more trials. I've been saved so I can have eternal life. And while the eternal life out of those three is, is true, the others aren't. And, and the primary purpose of God saving us is not your glory. It's not about you. It's not about me. Paul says it's about God. It's about His purpose. And we fall into this. We fall into coming to church saying church should minister to me. Church should be all about what I can get. I should go away feeling really good and really nice. And Church is about coming and worshiping God Almighty and giving Him glory and humbly coming before Him and saying, I confess that I'm a sinner. 
And I'm here at your service, at your beck and call. And Paul gets it. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Because Paul's saying, if in me, if God can save me, like we said, if God's grace can even come to me, there is no one, no one that God can't save. And so I become an example for that. The word for example is prototype. Some of you are working with prototypes at work. In fact, they have great 3D printers now that you, you put in the, the raw material and, and hit print, and it prints a 3D prototype. And then they can take molds of that and build items from that. That's what Paul is saying is, I'm a prototype. I'm the first. I'm an example. And because God has done this in me, He can do the same thing in others. Now think about that. God saved you to use your story, to use your testimony to reach other people. He wants to use your life for His purpose, to entrust you with the Gospel. Christianity isn't just about enjoyment. It's about fighting God's war with Him, with His strength. It's about people coming to Christ. And we see that in Paul's example. Finally, verse 17. God's servant respond to the gospel in praise and worship. God's servants respond to the gospel in praise and worship. After all this talk about salvation and Paul looking at his sin and Paul saying, I don't deserve this, but God somehow saved me in his power and his strength, his response is this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And he gives us a doxology of praise and worship. Paul can't help it. He never gets tired of doing it. Neither should we. And he praises the King of the angel, the ages, God eternal, immortal, that He will never die, invisible, that He is spirit, that, that we can't touch Him, we can't build, create idols that represent Him, the only God, that He is supreme. We give Him honor and glory forever and ever. And as I read that, I'm challenged. Does my life declare who God is unashamedly? Am I so amazed at His grace that I can't help but singing? That I can't help but worshiping of declaring the greatness of God? Because if I'm not, then I don't understand the depth of my sin like Paul did. And I don't understand the depth of His grace that would reach out to even me. If we're to be entrusted with the Gospel, we have to be amazed at the Gospel and worship Christ for what He has done. How great and how deep is God's grace and His glory. Dear Lord God, we owe You everything. And so we praise You. We give You honor 
and glory as the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.